Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts here. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And we are wrapping up The Crying of Lot 49. Today we're on Chapter 6. Um, another big one, Chapter 5, was uh, pretty lengthy uh, as far as this book is concerned. Chapter 6 is pretty much the same length, so quite a bit, I think, to go over. So, uh, Will, I'll pass it over to you for a summary of the chapter. Thanks. Oedipa returns to Echo Courts. The paranoids seem even more out of sorts than usual. It turns out Metzger's absconded with Serge's sweetheart, and this news is broken to Oedipa via song. Serge has decided to do as his elders instruct and move on to girls far younger than he. Oedipa finds a note from the evacuate attorney assuring her that, legally, all was clear. He's passed his duties on to another. The sterility stung. She finally calls Randolph Driblet, but his mother picks up and vaguely states that their lawyer would make a statement later that day. Moving on to other loose threads, Oedipa now rings Emery Bortz and is invited into his home by Grace, his wife. En route, she sees that Zaff's used books has burnt down, and when she stops to inquire, the owner of the next-door surplus store alleges arsonic fraud. He brags on his business acumen, having cleverly invested in the production of fraudulent swastika armbands and various SS-themed sundries. Oedipa is disgusted, and it takes her the rest of the drive to the Bortz's to cool down. She meets a few of the Bortz kids and makes acquaintance with Grace, who points her to the backyard, what turns out to be a small wake for Driblet attended to by a few grad students. He had, without explanation, walked himself into the sea to drown the rap night of the courier's tragedy. Professor Bortz and the crowd bemoan his loss, as the man had been, in their esteem, the most able to connect with the historical Warfinger. Oedipa asks about the Trister line of the play, and Bortz is shocked. That, vari that variation only existed, to his knowledge, in a pornographic reworking of the play held in secret under lock and key of the Vatican archives. That is, until Oedipa presents her paperback edition of Jacobian Revenge Plays. They all pontificate on the possible causes for Driblet's line substitution, but have no real ideas. Bortz invites her to look at some of his Warfingeriana, and shares that a colleague theorized the pornographic parody had been written for the purpose of demonstrating the immorality of theater by an extreme Puritan sect. Said sect may have chosen to epitomize the evils of worldliness as Tristero. Leaving momentarily to formally invite the ending of the wake, Bortz first directs Oedipa to a medieval travelogue by a strange blowhard named Diocletian Blob. Once she acclimates to the early modern English idiom, she reads a story remarkably similar to the scene of assassination of Niccolo from The Courier's Tragedy. Bortz assumes he'd been spared so to spread the word of the shadowy org to their next target, Revolutionary England. Over the next few weeks, Bortz and Genghis Cohen collect shards of information in their respective fields, literary history and philately, and pass them along to our heroine. It seems that in the late 16th century, in a dispute over heredity for executorship of the postal monopoly in modern Belgium, may have inspired one Hernando Joaquin de Tristero y Calavera to start an illicit courier service whose purpose over the years evolved from undermining Tristero's supposed, supposed usurper's power to simply wreaking havoc among Thurnan Taxis roots. Oedipa and all those she'd met at the Bortz's attend Driblet's funeral and return to his grave to toast the man with his own preferred varietal of wine in the night. 
Oedipa can't help but feel she's lost someone important to her, wonders if he was just another silenced by those conspiring to sever her connections like her husband, therapist, and co-executor. She cries out to his spirit but receives no, no reply. As they continue digging through text for hints, Forts, him always the dramaturge, elaborates a scene during the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire, where the Tristero conspiracy proposes a merger to their sworn foes. Perhaps that way, they would have turned the initial snubbing of their founder's inheritance into control of the whole network of couriers across the continent. However, no such deal was made, and Thernataxis dissolved, and so follow any hints to the next happenings in the history of their adversary. Emery Bortz may have waded too deeply into the mire alongside Oedipa, as he's even theorizing, without cause, that others may suspect the entire French Revolution to have been a plot to, to eliminate the last reaches of the previous monopoly. Her doubts brewing, Oedipa has started to question the sincerity of his paranoia, and is reluctant to expand the circle investigation. At some point, she returns to the scope and finds Mike Fallopian, now seeming to be off-grid. He asks, and she updates him, about the quest for the post-horn. At this point, even the Penguin follower expresses concerns about the verifiability of this information. It hits a little too close to the chest, and Oedipa leaves, surprised by his sudden hatred. Cohen continues unearthing rare fraudulent stamps, including one that reveals the meaning of waste. We await silent Tristero's empire. But now Oedipa's trust is waning. Pierce had owned the tank theater, the strip mall holding Zaffs in the surplus store, had endowed Bortz's current employer, Cohen had been hired by Metzger. Yet she couldn't square this with what she'd seen in the streets of San Francisco, the hordes who had all seemed to in touch with the underground network. She settles on four choices. She'd stumbled onto a huge conspiracy that took only subtle hinting to plainly see. Inverarity had tricked her into believing so. She was imagining the plot, or she was imagining Inverarity tricking her. All that gave her was the hope for insanity, that being the easiest to accept. She goes to a clinic under Grace Bortz's name, requests a pregnancy test, but does not return for the results. Cohen finds some esoteric article in a 40-year-old stamp collector's magazine, which theorizes that the remaining Tristero had collapsed in the French Revolution, and those independent couriers operated at the pest of even more independent early anarchists, while the majority left for the USA in the mid-1850s. It seems they discarded ambitions of continental monopoly and settled for masquerading as raiding parties of Plains tribes to remain a hidden opposition. Later, he shares some stamp auction gossip. Some stranger has entered the bidding for the lot of mistaken stamps, revealed as the eponymous Lot 49. He believes the stranger could be a fixer from the conspiracy, looking to keep the evidence concealed. At this point, Oedipa has no faith in the veracity of anything which made it to her attention via Cohen or Bortz. She can't bring herself to investigate their, their claims herself, either. In such a state of pure doubt, she calls the Greek way and asks for the enamorado anonymous. When he picks up, she explains her predicament and demands total honesty, threatening suicide. All he says is, it's too late, expounding with for me before hanging up. Disoriented, Wandering on foot, Oedipa realizes the true domain that Pierce's legacy had encompassed, the nation around her. Mourning, recalling bits of business he'd shared with her, she wonders whether, if it was his plot to introduce her to the Tristero, it had been a cruel act of grace to share this mystery, or a bitter reaching for immortality by corrupting her very mind with the same steps, same stamps she'd resented for his attention. 
She mulls further the simultaneous banality and inferred meaning of all the verifiables, accepting the paradoxical synthesis of America and the post-horn. Finally exhausted of excuses, she calls the auction agent when believed represented the Tristro's interests. He says the client had decided to attend the auction, and so Oedipa decides to do the same. She arrives cloaked in glares from either those conspiring conspiring against her or simply see how far out of place she is. There she meets Genghis Cohen, who'd come for his own purposes, and shares the auctionary definition of crying. Oedipus settled back to await the crying of Lot 49. Finn. Alright, so uh, first things first, how does everyone feel about this chapter? I think it's an interesting chapter for a couple of reasons, obviously, but um, I think it represents sort of a shifting of the narrative, less so from Oedipus' perspective of trying to hunt down the meaning behind these symbols, behind this alternate post service, behind Christero, and instead shifts more to the implications of what that organization is. There are certainly clues filled in as far as its past, its history, how it came to be in the the hundred years or two hundred years prior to the sort of portion of the narrative we're getting into, and then eventually when it go, eventually made its way to America. So there, we get some fill in there, but it sort of morphs towards the end of the book away from the protagonist and to a series of comments on America and also to like industrialism and capitalism through the lens of, of Pierce and this sort of community of San Narciso that he's made and how those two things enmesh together. And I think what's most interesting about the decision to do that narratively is, is it sort of is signaling the idea that Oedipa has accepted that there are no answers, that she's reached a point where she understands that she's never going to get the answer she's looking for. She's never going to to hunt down, you know, the postmaster general for, for waste or, or whoever that person might be. She's she's never going to realize why it is that these things came to her, whether or not Pierce was involved in it. And so instead, choosing to put it here at the end of the book, it seems like she is mentally moving to a position where she instead is considering what this all means in the lens of, of America as a whole and where... America is at in in the years that the book is taking place in, and it's a very Pinchon sort of decision to make, where he moves from these very personal elements that the book operates in for most of its of its length to the greater implications of what these things may mean, which is something he does across his entire canon. Yeah, that I I can't put it any better than that. Yeah, I, I can't disagree at all, although I, I find it, I guess, interesting that you, you view it as more of a zooming out, or as, when, when I read this chapter, I almost feel like it's zooming closer and closer into Oedipa herself, rather than her conscious state of trying to collect the clues together. It seems to me like this chapter is, while, while it's also doing that heavy, deep work of synthesizing the real, whatever, reality of the facts, um, the real history of the Tristero, it, it is also really focusing on just how broken up it has 
made Oedipus psyche, just how much she truly feels isolated and not in the dramatic sense, but just in this sad, cold, empty sense of, I have all of this, but nobody here cares or believes me. And if they do believe me, then they're as good as dead. It does seem like this is um, probably the loneliest chapter of the book. I mean, there is that passage about how uh, Oedipa is losing all her men uh, with Metzger running off with someone else, uh, Mucho and her uh, growing apart, uh, Dribblet dying, um, even her seeing Mike Fallopian. Mike Fallopian is seemingly more interested in the attention of other people, and Mike Fallopian also kind of is pretty negative in his interaction with her. Um, and even the, the very, the, the passages leading up to the very end, the passages leading up to the auction where Oedipa goes driving on the freeway and then wanders around, uh, a railroad station. Um, those are pretty kind of haunting, um, sad passages. Yeah. It's definitely a bleak chapter and a, and a somewhat bleak ending which is not out of character for Pinchon, especially with his earlier work. Um, it, it seemed to me, you know, everything that all of you said, I, I totally agree with. Um, and it kind of, I, I kind of had this image of, of Oedipo coming out of the fog of everything that had happened up to this point and realizing that she was, I, I don't want to say it had kind of hit a rock bottom, but had realized, you know, that, that she didn't really have anything left after all of this, that, you know, like, like you all said, you know, the, the men in her life were gone. The information that she had, whatever it's even worth, doesn't really mean anything to anybody else other than her. And that's pretty much all she has now. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just sad to have gone on that journey with her and just seen the, the the kind of step by step going down that, that's a terrible way to phrase it but she you know just repeatedly get you know is, is has things taken away from her her agency the people in her life the, the meaning in her life is all just kind of stripped away from her bit by bit and then this is you know the the ultimate you know realization of all of that for her yeah very true i think the two the two halves of how the chapter is constructed are very much related to one another because as she is pushed further into isolation, she has no option but to look to the things external to her and continue to wonder what they all say about the environment that she's she spent 252 pages existing in up until now. I guess uh, I guess a footnote to my, my reaction to the chapter this time through is that... Uh... Luke, I, I kind of owe you an apology. Back in Chapter 2's discussion, you brought up the theory about um, what whether Oedipa had been somehow spiritually or literally impregnated by Metzger. Um, and this reading this chapter through, I, I guess I just completely forgot just how much that was here in these final in this final chapter. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem one hundred percent clear. Uh, in my opinion, but I get what you're saying. Um, she does schedule the the visit with the with the gynecologist, and um, it does seem to kind of imply that um, you know there's something going on there. Um, 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, I that guy that I keep on referencing, Robert Cohn, Robert Kahn, interpreted that passage as being about uh, a miscarriage, uh, a possible miscarriage, which would just kind of add to the the general um, sadness of the chapter. Um, one thing that I like to think about with this chapter is again, it's I talked about this last week, but it does it did remind me of On the Road. Um, the ending of On the Road, how sad the ending of On the Road is, and um, the Beat Generation in general. Uh, the ending of the chapter leading up to the auction does, like, she's wandering around the the railroad station and kind of contemplating uh, people that have dropped out of society and are, are, are squatting in, in old trains and stuff, um, and seems to kind of be contemplating the dark side of the American dream. Uh, which I do think the beat generation addresses a lot. And there's something that I've been thinking about for a few weeks now, but there's something that Kerouac called uh, end of land sadness. And I think in relation to San Francisco and California, um, but even, you know, end of land sadness that could apply to Driblet killing himself by walking into the ocean. And it, there is that passage of uh, near the end where she can't see the mountains and she also can't see the ocean. And she seems to be in this kind of liminal nether region uh, where she may not even... She's obviously in California, but it doesn't seem like it's clear to her where in America she is. Um, so I found that interesting to think about. I think the other thing that's interesting to consider in relation to the fact that she does go and get the pregnancy test is that it does come after the scene where she first goes to the Bortz's house and um, Bortz's wife specifically asks whether or not she has any children because of the way that she presents herself. Like her appearance to his wife seems to signal the fact that she is likely in a, in a similar life situation that, that she is. And the other interesting thing to consider in relation to that is this is one of the the few male characters who does not make an attempt to take advantage of her. He does make an offer of, you know, did you want to go see some dirty pictures? But it's it's literally related to the reason why she's she's there. And they do seem to present a happy image of a family that that isn't, you know, deeply disturbed or messed up or or in permanent crisis. So I think there's also a part of that inclusion in the narrative that is Oedipa almost wishing that that was the truth, as if having a child or if she was pregnant by either Mucho or one of these other men that she slept with could potentially deliver her from her imprisonment to give her that image of, of happiness that um, she sees when she's at the Bortz's house, especially in light of the fact that his wife already thought that, that she was likely married with children. I did interpret that that section as possibly being concerning how the men in her life are, have been infantilized and how badly she's been treated by the men in her life. So rather than having children that are making her life hell, it's it's all these men um, who have made her life hell. Um, I, yeah, I mean, Metzger has infantilized himself by running off with a teenager. The LSD seems to have kind of infantilized Mucho. Um, Generally, the men in her life don't seem super mature or in touch with um, feminist ideals. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to just uh, express some gratitude for the character of Grace. She is remarkably normal and treats Oedipo <laughs> with, a, 
with an in a degree of respect and empathy that nobody else has come close to in this entire book. And she's just like, she, she even essentially insults her, but it's entirely harmlessly. It's, she means well, she's just trying to be a good neighbor to this complete stranger who's shown up at her door. Yeah. The only other like female characters that Oedipa seems to have a friendship with are the ones from the very beginning of the book, which we never even really get to see. And even they are trying to ply her with, with dosed up party drinks in order to get her to buy Tupperware. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird, it was almost jarring to see Oedipa like be treated like a normal human being for, for once. Cause we've gone through, you know, 200, well, depending on the edition, we've gone through a significant portion of this book just watching her get beaten down by different people in different ways and used, a, you know, she was basically a means to an end for almost every male character that was in, you know, in her life. And to see her finally just have that moment of humanity was, it, it kind of stopped me for a second and I had to go back and, and make sure I was reading it right. And yeah, it just, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's weird. It's just jarring. Mm -hmm. Additionally, heartbreaking part about it too, is it probably makes her wonder if that was what her life could have been if she had gotten married to a, a man who actually cared for and loved her. And, and if they had had children together, like she, there's probably a part of her almost that wonders, you know, if, if I had had a house in this neighborhood and then our, our kids maybe could be friends, like maybe this is the life that I could have had rather than the one that I ended up having. Yeah. I mean, would she even have gone on this whole journey if she'd had kids or a kid, you know, if she, because I, I think so much of this is her searching for meaning, mm -hmm. which we'll, we'll kind of touch on that. Cause I have some, uh, some things I wanted to bring up on that, on that end. But if things like you said, Kate had been different for her and, you know, she had kids, she had a family, she had that meaning in her life. I think, you know, just from the the little time that we've spent with her, I don't think she would have cared about Pierce's little game. You know, she would have gotten the call and been told you're the executor of this estate. My wife, she was an, I, I don't really care. I'm, I've got other things in my life. Just, you know, let someone else deal with it. Yeah. And at, at the same time, you've, you've got to wonder, uh, as she drives into their neighborhood, uh, Pynchon describes it as a Parian settlement in the style of Fangoso Lagoons, mm -hmm. which to me seems like a sign that, yes, they are in suburban paradise, suburban paradise that is entirely controlled by people like Pierce. And later on in the book, or later, sorry, later on in the chapter, you got to wonder if she isn't on some level considering that as a symbol of how much Bortz may or may not be controlled by Inverarity. And to add on to that, later in the same scene, when they're looking at the uh, dirty pictures, Emery Bortz mentions that both he and Grace had been involved in the research of Warfinger's works back in the day. And yet at this point, all she has time for is the kids. So is Pynchon saying that Oedipa wishes that she had that, but regardless, shouldn't have had it? Or... Is it simply insulation, regardless of a positive or negative morality? 
It's a good question. I think it comes down to your interpretation of what it is that Oedipa is looking for to give her meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to the the larger text in general when in in the uh this new essays on crying of 49 book i have i don't remember which which of the essays it is specifically but it was mentioned that you know edipa is in a sense is us is the reader searching for meaning and in this whole vast bizarre story where the the meaning may or may not even be there and what is there really comes down to what you want to what you get out of it yourself it goes back to that whole like i think we talked about it maybe even in the intro episode about the the whole meaning of of everything in in art in media that you consume is entirely subjective so it's going to be different for everybody and i think i thought that was a really interesting point that 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 person made i need to figure out which author it was in here but that Oedipa is essentially a representation of us as a reader and how we act as a detective while we are reading these stories and pulling meaning out of all these different little things that may not have been put there to provide the meaning that we're getting, but based on our own life experiences and the things that we had experienced prior to engaging in this work determines how it comes out to us. Yeah, and that reading even feeds back into the previous chapter's metaphor about um, feeding information to Maxwell's demon. Which is, which is quintessentially postmodern when you think about how the, the literary development um, occurred in modernism, this idea of, of there is truth, there are these modern things that we need to, to hold to in order to create a society that the postmodern authors, for the most part, came along and said... That isn't necessarily true. There are things that, that cause changes for every individual person. There are things that cause changes that, that can sometimes break down the very substance of, of the societies that these people in the generation before us created. So why not create art that, that allows people to experience those things differently or that maybe has no answer? It's it's something that, that Pinchon plays with in all of his books, but in light of the essay that you mentioned, it would be especially interesting if if that was the sort of frame that he started composing this book from, of creating a narrator or a protagonist who is more or less an insert for the reader to go on this journey and, and question what these things mean in light of their own experience, not just reading the book, but also their life experience. That sounds like a very, very well-crafted and thought-out essay. Yeah, let me see if I can... I think it might be this one. Um, it's if it's the one I'm thinking. The essay is called uh, "Borges and Penchon: The Tenuous Symmetries of Art" by Deborah A. Castillo. Um, let me see, because I had a bunch of stuff marked in here, and I didn't plan on coming into it today. I was going to bring it up in the wrap-up episode, but let me see if I can find specifically where, because she also mentioned that idea as kind of just an idea of postmodernism in general. Um, I mean, she has a line in here where she says she's talking about um, the the plots and the codes that are that are dropped into the book, and that quote from from earlier in the book that uh, Driblet had about you can waste your life uh, that way and never touch the truth. 
And she, she responds to that by saying such admonitions serve as both warning against and invitation for overreading of the novel. Yeah, I, I was particularly thinking about um, with the in, in this chapter, the discussions of the, the historical Tristero, looking at how much that lined up with events of the play and then of the um, the other fictional things which take place in this book throughout. Uh, I realized that it, it is there's almost a nested structure of symbols that exist within the facade of the book, within the book, within the play, etc. It just ends up all coming together to imply that if you're going to take any part of the smaller fictions in the novel as relevant to Oedipus mystery, then you kind of have to invert Oedipus mystery for yourself, leaving you as the sorter of facts once again. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to that, that concept of, of Oedipa as a detective and, and us as a reader, as a detective, you know, we're taking clues and signs and symbols and, basically layering our own interpretation of those over it to create our overall interpretation of whatever it is we're consuming. Now, I think it's, I don't think it's fair to say that there can be a necessarily a wrong way to interpret. I I think you can certainly kind of get lost in the, in the, in the weeds a bit, you know, and overanalyze things and maybe make these logical leaps. I think with that, that uh, essay um, that we talked about in chapter three, the one about JFK, some of those those interpretations were a little bit of a, of a stretch to me personally. But again, that kind of goes to you know that that idea of uh, subjective analysis and and how it plays into um, not just Pinchon's work. I would even say not even necessarily in postmodernism work, but almost with any any art at all. I, I certainly think there are books and stories and films where the you know there is a kind of clearly intentioned message, and I I myself tend to not enjoy those as much when it comes off kind of ham-fisted or it's it's really trying to push its its ideology or its message at you. But I think that's kind of what I what I really enjoy about postmodernism, like Kate was saying, like it it you know kind of opens up so much more to allow you to get more out of it individually. Yeah. And that's where you get into questions about death of the author as a philosophical argument for, for any form of art. How about the other new character from the start of this chapter, Winthrop Tremaine? How do we <laughs> yeah. all feel about him as a contrast <laughs> to grace? Yeah. Yeah. He's quite the opposite. That's for sure. Is he just an, an amoral idiot or is he villainous? I guess is my question. Well, okay, so I was thinking about this today, actually, with him specifically, it, kind of what you asked, like, is how, how are we to view him? Because to be honest, there are people like that today. You know, there are, I don't want to say a lot, but I think more than one is, is a lot of, of people who actively collect and distribute Nazi memorabilia. It's... I, it's such a weird uh, interest to have, and I don't think it's one. Uh, I think a lot of times you can, kind of, when people have these kind of esoteric interests, 
you can sometimes separate out, you know, okay, it's a weird thing to me, but you know, they, it's fine. They're not hurting anybody. I think that's one of those few where I, I cannot separate what your interest is from its history. And I know, I don't think that type of person was as uh, prevalent in the sixties. Maybe they were. And I just, I don't know, but I know they're still around today and it's just, it's just weird to know that that's still a thing. You know, in the interest of defending our Nazi memorabilia collector fans, um, you know, there's a big difference between collecting actual historical artifacts and producing swastika armbands for the sake of sale. That's one thing that's kind of odd about uh, this chapter and that part is that it does seem like he's like he's pre- he's it seems like he's producing like new uh ss uniforms and stuff it doesn't seem like he's trafficking in world war ii memorabilia memorabilia as it he's more so like creating like nazi cosplay stuff like in like in in the present tense rather than collecting stuff that was already made yeah that's absolutely what he's doing and it's hard to make a, a value judgment on not just him as a character like will asked is he evil or just you know something else entirely without understanding why he's doing that or who they're being sold to because the only impression you get is that for whatever reason he is seeming to either have come across a fashion trend or is attempting to create one with what he's producing and selling um which of course reminds me of the fact that a lot of the early like first wave punk bands wore swastika armbands or other um specifically inflammatory clothing but obviously that was still quite a a ways away when this book was published but there's there seems to be not enough information in relation to what he's doing and and why to really to really make a value judgment on him as a character he's certainly strange and he's certainly probably at the very least racist considering that he he uses the n-word but frequently yeah yeah but outside of that there's there's not much that Pinchon gives the reader to go on. Yeah, yeah. it isn't. It isn't clear if he's an opportunist or a Nazi himself. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I had to wonder how long he's been doing this. Did you know? Has he made enough success in doing what he's doing to keep the shop, or did he just get the shop and is kind of starting to launch into this? Was it something? Was he doing something else and then kind of shifted over? Like, yeah, there's just so many. So many questions that I I want answers to, but I don't at the same time. I think there is, I mean, his name is somewhat significant in that it seems to be a portmanteau of John Winthrop and John Tremaine. John Winthrop was um, a Puritan who came to America in the 17th century and was actually the one who sort of quoted or coined, rather, that term of of a city upon a hill and was, was pretty big for trying to evangelize like a a fictional america that still has yet to exist of this like beautiful promised land of you know equally positive people who are who are treated equally and then john tremaine is uh, a character a hero from a, a children's book about the the american revolution that was published in the 40s um the only real like connection to the the greater part of the chapter that i can pick up on from a standpoint of his character's name is speaking about that potentially inherent 
discrepancy in the America that is so mythologized and the America that is actually heavily populated with all of these sort of strange characters running in and around the streets of it that are likely the exact opposite of what someone like those Puritan preachers was saying the country was going to be populated with, which does have some connection to the later portions of the book where Oedipa wonders about America as a whole in in light of Inverarity's empire, but that's really as, as deep as I was able to, to go with, with his character. I hadn't even thought about uh, the the Tremaine. I I did think of Johnny Tremaine with that, but the John Winthrop connection, I hadn't. I the name sounded familiar, but I didn't have any recollection of it until you went over it. Uh, that's that's interesting, though. Yeah, I had just interpreted his name as just kind of a portmanteau of generically like old money American names. Yeah, I could see that. It has a very like that's a name that I would have expected to see more in like against the day. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it did yeah. make me wonder if there were. I I completely forget, but it does make me wonder. It rang a bell of like character names in some of in some of uh, Pynchon's novels that were set, um, you know, before the 1960s. But I'm not. I don't. I'm not 100 percent that there are any characters that are actually similarly similarly named. I mean, Winthrop. Not to get too far off on on the topic, but I, the only thing or other character i can think off the top of my head that that name and kind of character reminds me of is that he would be associated in some way with the uh the vibes in against the day yeah winthrop five is the adventuring son i think okay yeah that that would be the bell that was that was ringing in my brain then I have to think. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but that sounds right. I could. We. I don't know. Um, the only real. I mean, so we we met a couple other characters. Uh, well, Lauren Passerine, the auctioneer, um, kind of briefly pops up at the end, and then there's the Keda Chingado, which I, I'm in South Texas. I, I absolutely picked up on that. I used to work construction for my dad for a long time, uh, so I learned a lot of Spanish words that I wasn't allowed to say at school. Uh, so I, I caught that one pretty quick. Um, but the, the image of Emery Bortz drunkenly throwing bottles at birds just was hilarious (laughs) to me. It had such a big Lebowski vibe that I was just imagining, um, I can't even remember his, his name, the, the anarchist, um, or the nihilist, I'm sorry, the nihilist who spends most of his time just like passed out in the pool. Um, I just got those vibes of him just throwing empty beer bottles at birds. Um, well, let's. Let's get into the goings on in this in this chapter. Um, right off the bat, I, I kind of want to get everyone's feel on why at the beginning of the chapter Metzger gave up his executorship and ran off with a fifteen year old. The the running off with a fifteen year old isn't it's a concerning situation, obviously, but the what left me wondering more was why he just abandoned all of this so suddenly and without notice. Well, to me, it, it really, I don't know, it emphasizes the the reading that we mentioned earlier that Metzger's essentially inheritance from Inverarity was being 
given an opportunity to sleep with Oedipa, I guess. You, you know, he got that done yeah. and he's out of there. Nothing else to do. It maybe is, is an example of a rather than why a why not situation. I don't know. See, it was I I've I've been kind of reading this with the 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 movie The Game in the back of my head. I don't know if any of y'all have seen. I think Will and I talked about this um, a while back during a break, but uh, I, I don't know if any of y'all have seen that movie. But it's it's similar in the sense that there is this widespread, elaborate um, game, you know, the, uh, that is set up for one of the characters in which the line between it being a game and it being reality blurs so heavily that. Uh, the the viewer and the character just kind of lose track of of how much of it is real and how much of it is all planned out and it seems almost impossible to pull something like that off until you realize that with enough money and enough influence which Pierce definitely has it's really probably not that hard especially if you keep it somewhat localized in sort of the area that we're talking about here uh you could easily kind of sway the right people to do enough and then you know let them know hey once this is done you can you know you can bail you're good that was kind of my initial take on Metzger leaving that he had done his part he got brought out about where she needed to get and then he was free to bounce and he did that's one reading of it I think I, I there's certainly other ways to interpret that that's just what I was thinking of with that movie in the back of my mind I think getting back to what Will had mentioned at the top of this episode about Metzger being essentially an infantilized individual being obsessed with his his child acting days, I think choosing to have him run away with a 15-year-old speaks to that same thing as well, that he can't be around his his childlike days anymore. He can't continue to to be that age any longer. And so when he is either given or takes an opportunity to to run away with this 15-year-old that puts him back in a position where he is he is surrounded by somebody in a similar state of mind and he doesn't necessarily ab- abandon his responsibility he turns it over to um a- another law firm to handle mm-hmm. it um but that is sort of how i read that inclusion um but of course my my interpretation of whether or not pierce's setting all of this up for Oedipa is, is likely different than yours. I, I guess it kind of depends on what was the last scene that Metzger actually featured in? Was it um, sitting in the scope arguing with Fallopian? I think it was. I think Yeah, right. I think so. Yeah, that's not helpful. Well, yeah, it, and I, I see where you're, uh, Kate and Will are coming from. And you know, again, there's there's no singular way to to come away from all of this, and I kind of see. I, I was kind of trying to read it this time through with the lens of of both possibilities, or not even both, but I guess all four really possibilities being the right. I don't even want to say the right one, but all four. I was kind of trying to view it as you know from all all those different angles, um, but. It it so it kind of bouncing off of of that idea and and Pierce's influence in all of this if it's there, um, the the burning down of the of Zap's bookstore. How how do you 
how are you taking that away from this? Or what are you taking away from that? In my mind, the burning down of, of Zaf's bookstore and the subsequent deaths of other characters involved in the plot and the the anonymous man at the at the Greek way saying that his time is up and, and all of that, to me recalls the idea that the secret post system is is basically burning loose ends. That they've they've realized that there are people aware of them and that these things are cropping up in in multiple editions of you know paperback hardcover this version of this book and and this printing of this book as well as all of these people being aware of it and trying to to deliberately call loose ends um it is easier to kill a bookstore owner by saying that his bookstore lit on fire to pass that off as an accident while also being able to destroy any remaining copies of the evidence that he may or may not have had I think it, it could also speak to, I mean, you know, Cosa Nostra, the, the mob is is included in this book. Um, Pierce is shown as having a uh, clear monetary association with the mob. Um, and maybe I've just watched The Sopranos too much, but the, the cover story of the book being the bookstore being burned down for insurance money. I mean, it, that that could just be an example of like Kate was saying, uh, tying up loose ends and uh, shutting down uh, possible leaks and stuff. But I mean, it also could just be, as as it's stated, you know, a, a money grabbing scheme. Um, but another example of kind of the Tristero's um, connection to more unsavory elements and kind of more countercultural uh, criminal elements. Yeah, I guess in the spirit of agreeing with uh, your your all four results are possibly true idea, Cody. I, I see it as kind of one of those things where it really doesn't matter why it happened. If it was arson, if it was just an accident, I mean, it's a bookshop, it could go up, who knows. Um, if it was burning loose ends or getting revenge, I don't think it matters. You know, it, to me, all that matters is that symbolically it says, you are not going to find anything else. You're not going to be able to dig into the physical reality here. You're going to have to rely on these people like Bortz and um, Cohen, who you don't really trust. And even though she has reason to distrust Zaff later on in the chapter, I think it's just, here's a symbol of that happening alongside, what, two, two or three others in this chapter? I think, yeah. To, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, it, either way, it's yeah. You're right. There's so there's a line in connection with all with this scene at the end of Oedipus' interaction with with Winthrop Tremaine, Tremaine. Sorry, when she's she's already left and has that kind of, I think it's called a stairwell moment where you kind of think of you know the clever response or the thing to do that you should have done after you've already gone away. And she says, you're chicken, she told herself, snapping her seatbelt. This is America. You live in it, you let it happen. Let it unfurl. That, I, I, there's a lot in that quote, I think, for me. More than just the idea that, you know, she wanted to beat the shit out of him because he's an asshole. Um, just that idea of there's these vile people in the world that exist and... A lot of times, you know, and, and 
a lot of times we just let them be. We 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 have allowed it to happen and to gestate gestate and to to become what it becomes. And that's just kind of how we do things. You know, we we see these ugly things happen, we see these awful things that occur and most people just don't really do anything. And they just kind of sit there and they they watch it and they move on with their lives and there's there should be a a sense of responsibility taken in those situations, but there never really is. But then we're always quick to turn back and say, well, this, you know, we should, this shouldn't be like that, but you know, we can't, we let it get there. And I think that kind of speaks to the downfall of, of everything that the sixties was working towards. You know, we had this, this movement, this, this push towards actually changing something and doing something. And the, I can't say, you know, we, none of us were there at the time, but the people who were there, who were pushing for it and who were there, you know, not necessarily on the front line, so to speak, but were there in the background and, and were there supporting different things in different ways, just watched it collapse and watched it happen and then moved on with their lives. It also reminds me of uh, the Vietnam War. Um one thing that I'm not 100% that all of our listeners are going to know is that, I mean, the Vietnam War was pretty much the first heavily televised war. Mm-hmm. You know, on the nightly news, there would have been combat footage. Uh, and I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the preceding chapter, in chapter five, we do get a mention of the the uh, the the business executive who wants to set himself on fire in the style of Buddhist Vietnamese Buddhist monks, um, which, you know, that would have also made the news, um, would have been in the newspaper and stuff, you know, like people like, I mean, to, to kind of contrast, you know, people in Vietnam to protest the war are setting themselves on fire. And then, you know, there's probably a lot of Americans during this time who were just kind of living their life, you know, didn't go to protest, didn't, maybe didn't directly support the war, but were paying taxes and stuff. Um, I think a year or two after this book came out, Pynchon did sign a petition that I think was um, was placed as an advertisement in major newspapers mm-hmm. where he said he wasn't going to pay any tax increases uh, that would contribute to the war in Vietnam. Um, I think you get where I'm going with that. You know, there probably was a sense that a lot of people were just kind of letting it happen. Uh, not directly protesting, not really doing anything other than just living their lives uh, while all this horrible stuff, you know, like the My Lai uh, massacre and all this horrible stuff was happening in Vietnam. Everyone was just kind of letting it happen, paying taxes and just, you know, living their life. Yeah, and to, to continue that, I mean, immediately after saying, this is America, you live in it, you let it happen, let it unfurl, Oedipus' next step is to, quote-unquote, hunt for Volkswagens. That's not going to stop any Nazis. And, you know, it's a fun, <laughs> it's a fun little joke for the narrator. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, we've seen time and time again, Oedipa and other people do these little acts of rebellion that don't help anything and in the long term help strengthen the, the control of them. Yeah. And I and I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that that is <clears throat> excuse me. I think that's something that capital T they kind of feed on 
or or at least need to keep going is those those little moments of of people thinking like oh i'm i'm doing this rebellious thing i'm whatever the case may be and like you said it's it's not doing anything and if it is doing anything it's probably feeding more into what they're trying to do but giving you that sort of feel good sensation of doing something in opposition of it uh the other quote kind of not necessarily quote prosy quote that we do later on but plot plot wise point that i wanted to bring up is in at the end of for me it's page 125 when she's talking to bortz and he tells her or she just learns about uh dribblette dying and there's that uh, kind of internal monologue where she's, she says they're stripping from me. She said so vocally feeling like a flood, a fluttering curtain in a very high window moving up to then out over, over the abyss. They are stripping away one by one. My men, I, I don't know if, if y'all came away with the same imagery I had, but the, the first place my mind went was back to the, uh, Bordando, uh, El Manto Terrestre painting of that idea of being back in the tower uh, just that that being high up in looking out over the nothingness that's out there, I, that, to me that kind of was Oedipa jumping back into that and being reminded of that so that isolation that she had felt and has been feeling growing more and more since the start of this book. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering that the rest of that paragraph goes on to describe what's happened to to all of the other men in her life beyond just. Um, Driblet, where it, it it truly shows the fact that she is being pushed into isolation, especially because, like we talked about already on this episode, there are no, she doesn't have any any female friends really. There's the ones that are that are not named at the beginning of the the book, and then you know she meets Grace in this chapter, but otherwise she's been surrounded by men, and now they're all gone. And to to kind of bounce off of of that idea. And and kind of back up a little bit and, and look at the whole of all of this as as far as if we kind of go back to the the idea that Pierce has a hand in this, whether it's directly by setting all of this up or just his death sparking the beginning of this journey. In in that um new essays on crying of Lot 49, there's a one of the essays in here. Excuse me. It's called Towards a Schizo Text Paranoia as Semiotic Regime in the Crying of Lot 49 by John Johnston. I mentioned this particular essay, essay before as it related. I find the semiotic interpretation of this to be really the most interesting to me, uh, just because it, it has that whole idea of subjectiveness and everything. But he mentions, he says, not accidentally, Pierce's name evokes the name of American founder of the American founder of semiotics, C.S. Pierce. Appropriately, he seems to stand behind to, quote, figure, as it were, one of the novel's central motifs, that the dead never really go away or disappear, but persist as signs. And that that whole idea of her being back in the tower and feeling that again made me kind of think about that and how this it, it, it keeps going back to Pierce. And we'll get to that again later, obviously, because we, we get an idea later on of, of how much... Pierce really controls, but I, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on that concept. I'm sorry, what what specific concept? That 
let me let me go back to that specific line because it was. Hold on a sec. Uh, that the that the dead never really go away or disappear, but persist as signs. If if that if if everything, all these signs that Oedipus is seeing along the way are really just uh, sort of reminders of Pierce throughout, you know, all of it. Obviously, there's you know, they're they're representations of what they are to her, but they're also kind of going back to just being about Pierce. Yeah, I see that as a valid understanding. I don't I don't have anything to add on to it, but that makes sense to me. It is certainly a big part of of the book. I mean, going back to the the scene about dandelion wine, there's there's literally a line in there that says that even the dead persist into a bottle of wine. So there is certainly this idea present through the whole book of of people having a transitive property into the things that they surrounded themselves with or or were um pierce is certainly all over the book from the companies that he controlled or the land that he bought or the things that he built but i think whether you have an interpretation that pierce purposely set at a pub to go on this journey journey or if your interpretation is that his death ended up unintentionally leading her on this journey they are all still signs um that make up in in augury of pierce for sure i i think that oedipa likely would not have cared to look into any of this if it didn't have something related to pierce because pierce was the closest thing that she ever got to to feeling like the night of deliverance had come for her and so as a result she she feels an, an additional burden to to track those things down i think that's an absolutely correct interpretation of of not only why those symbols are in, in, like inextricably tied to him, but also why it is that she takes such a keen interest and, and allows it to fundamentally sort of reformat her brain as she goes down this path. So we also get, I've, I've noticed this, I don't want to call it a, a motif necessarily, but there's a, a part here where she's talking to Bortz and it, the the line specifically is too much sunlight shown on the bottles, silent all around them. And and if I'm not mistaken, the same kind of thing happened in Yo-Yo Dine, where she was kind of overwhelmed by the the brightness of the lights and simultaneously the not I don't think in that situation it was a silence. It was, it was if I remember correctly, it was that there was a lot of noise going on. I don't think there was though. I have to think about that now, but anyways, that, that overwhelming light seems to come in at, at these certain moments for her. And it, it seems like it's a, it's a recurring, you know, image that has popped up a few times. There was another mention of it with the, the crystals. I think when she was talking with Mr. Thoth, um, I, I'm not really sure how I'm interpreting that other than I, it, it seems to be these moments of, of Oedipus, I don't want to call it recognition necessarily, but something is coming upon her and it's, it's creating these moments where she's having this brightness uh, illuminated onto her. Yeah, I think you would look to, to when those moments come and you'd find that they're seems to be a correlation between that and and moments of epiphany or or moments of epiphany that come 
slightly before or after it. Because realistically, from a thematic perspective, much of the book itself is about epiphany as a as a, a mind state or as a, a position to be in. Um, so I think it's it's likely a, a flourish that, that Pinchon is engaging in in order to to signal sort of a further evolution or, or change in Oedipa as she continues to navigate what she's looking to, to find out. Yeah, and, and speaking of evolution of Oedipa as a character, I find very important to this chapter the fact that she has started to wall herself off from the curiosity that has gotten her to this point. And, you know, it's left as an exercise to the reader as to whether she should have held on to that curiosity and persevered, or whether she's right to just stop looking at a certain point. But it seems quite fundamental to who she is and this sense of alienation that this chapter exhibits, that she starts out calling Drablet, going over to see this random person, Emery Bortz, who edited a collection of plays this one time. Um, and by the end of it, all that she can bring herself to do is to go to an auction. I, I think that that speaks somewhat to her inability to be a, a sorter of reality, going back to, to the Maxwell's demon analogy and how that idea of, of sorting really is is not only just Oedipus job but also the the job of the reader of the book but it also your your statement there will reminded me of the end of the first chapter which if I can just go back and and reindulge the listener in um the end of the first chapter finishes by saying having no apparatus except gut fear and female cunning to examine this formless magic to understand how it works how to measure its field strength count its lines of force she may fall back on superstition, or take up a useful hobby like embroidery, or go mad, or marry a disc jockey. If the tower is everywhere, and the night of deliverance is no proof against its magic, then what else? I think that is obviously a fairly prophetic line in terms of how the rest of the book plays out, but I think it's also a statement of the reality that that Oedipa ends up in. The tower is not a... a a locale that she's stuck in. It isn't. It isn't something that's coming from one specific person or one specific place. It's. It's everywhere. And even when she stumbles across some sort of, you know, conspiracy or or some sort of opportunity to sort out meaning from her experience, even that proves to just be within the tower because its its walls are larger than she thought. And the night of deliverance that she thought would come to to take herself away from it didn't work. And so in the case of that, the Night of Deliverance is gone. The last thing that the Night of Deliverance may have left for her or given to her doesn't work. She's still not able to sort things out. She's still not able to be the sensitive required in order to make the demon function. She sort of is left with no choice but to allow the walls of the tower to to take place uh, as as the primacy of how she... She sees the world around her. She's she's stuck with no other option but to wall herself off. Yeah, I, I have nothing to add to that. That's I, both of y'all are spot on. I think. Um. So, if we kind of if we go back to the the idea of reading, not only us reading it as a detective, but Oedipa being a detective. There was a couple of times in, in this particular chapter, and I may have missed it in other chapters, where she's really focused on 
reading the faces of people she's talking to. Um, at this part in the story, you know, she's when she's talking to Bortz, there's that line about his Bortz's, Bortz's face stayed neutral. And then later uh, on, um, I think it's page 137, she was talking to, um, it might have been Genghis Cohen. Um, she's, again, reading these faces and, and trying to parse out you know, whether this person is, is being truthful to her or if they're hiding something from her about whatever's going on. And I, I kind of, you know, in, in thinking about it in that sort of semiotics and, and, and interpreting signs kind of in a way, um, I, I think that kind of speaks to us as, you know, as a reader, you know, again, just kind of looking for these little nuanced changes in things to see if we can pick up on, on what might be there. That did kind of remind me of the phone call she makes to the Greek way where she identifies herself as Arnold Snarb and um, seems to kind of desperately try to level with the the unnamed guy that she talked to um, where she seems to I forget exact what the exact words are, but she seems to really be like, you know, like just wanting him to cut the shit and stop fucking with her. Um and it doesn't seem to work, you know, but she does seem to have reached uh, a stage of desperation uh, where she's she's willing to make it clear to other people, perhaps, that she's not um, doing so hot mentally and that she's really starting to question her reality and um, question, you know, the what's going on around her in a, in a very, like, deep and um, perhaps unhealthy way. It, it's, um... In the just prior to that, and she says in that conversation, I just went driving blind on the freeway, drunk. Um, it's not a joke for me. And together with the symbol of the tower walls closing in, I think uh, we'd be to ignore the, the fact suicide has throughout this entire book. But this is the chapter where she makes multiple attempts, and there's very little that I can imagine a real-life Rapunzel who never has her Prince Charming climb her hair um, to do, except for eventually try to leave the tower through her own devices. And I think there is there is an interpretation, I think, in the ending with her choosing to show up to the auction in person, especially with the inclusion of the line where Pinchon says that she seems to interpret other people as expecting that she wouldn't have shown up. And in her not going out of her way to finally like confront the person that she thinks is there from Tristero to buy the, the postage stamps and instead just waits to see what it is, that it is possible there is an interpretation I should I should rephrase that that is her electing to try and, and leave herself. That at that point she's no longer necessarily following down the same track anymore she's she's exhausted the track and so instead now she's just willing to examine things as they come and whether or not that's going to lead her to a, a successful climb down from that tower or whether or not it's going to continue to keep her in the same loops that she's going through I, I think that is an interpretation that you can come away from with the ending but i think 
the ending is is largely left deliberately ambiguous as to whether or not the reader is is going to come away with with the thought that she will ever make it out or if she's just going to to continue to stay there and just allow whatever happens to happen it's a very interesting ending for for a number of reasons yeah i i think there's it it's almost like it's it's a last act of defiance for her this kind of idea that you know i've i've done everything i could possibly try to do to get to whatever any of this is and by showing up it's kind of that last fuck you to whoever it is that's that's in control at this point but there's also i i took the ending as in a way it, it's it's haunting because you know you do have that idea that she's finally kind of doing this thing for herself and and gotten to the point where she can allow herself to not necessarily be be controlled by the people who were controlling her and but at the same time she gets there and yeah they, there is that idea of you know we didn't think you'd be here but the 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 person i think it's the auctioneer who has that who's mentioned as having that kind of attitude it also smiles at her and there's a sort of creepiness to that in my reading of it of like okay well if you want to be here you're going to find out some shit that you probably don't want to find out and i i think just to me that that adds a sort of haunting element to that whole ending yeah, especially describing the auctioneer as a priest yeah the 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 really religious like you know the arms out like mm-hmm. it yeah it just had a really i don't know just a really creepy eyes wide shut type of thing well it, we we can't forget that this isn't the first time that she's decided to go off the rails and search for her own I mean, that was the, the feature of Chapter 5, really, was her deciding to go look around for herself, away from any of these influences. And so to me, it's, it's extra haunting because it seems like it's just going to be another instance of her finding the chalk-drawn post horn in the ground. She's just going to keep on searching, and she's going to keep on being inspired to think that she's onto something. And it's almost a, a taunting of you think you have a hint, but all it ever does is lead you down more wandering paths. Kind of yeah. chasing the, the, the goal line that keeps moving away from you kind of thing. Yeah. And that's certainly the, my personal interpretation that I would subscribe to based on the ending of the book. And I, I think it's interesting. I wanted to go back uh, to what Luke was saying specifically mentioning that that scene where she called the um the greek way and and spoke with the unnamed um member of of IA i i may be looking too into this um the line when he he says i was in the little boys room initially i read that and was just kind of like that's a weird thing to say and then i got to thinking about it and i i had to go back and look at it and the person when when she initially arrives in that scene back in that chapter, the person who put the Arnold Snar name badge on her was described as having a cherubic face, and it made me wonder if that was Arnold Snarb, if 
he put the name tag on or the name badge on her because eventually, you know, that happens. She kind of wanders through the crowd before she makes her way into the bar and then she meets up with him. And if, if I, you know, again, I'm looking at this through the idea of, you know, I'm trying to take all these angles in and see this, but in specifically looking at it as something that Pierce set up, you know, this could easily be someone that was, that was there to kind of guide her in a specific direction and, and, you know, keep pushing her towards where she's supposed to go. I mean, the, the text does say that it's, it's Arnold Snarb who puts the name badge on her. Cause he, he specifically says, let me pin this on you. I just left. Right. I, I think what I'm, I'm wondering if, if he is the same person that she ends up speaking to in the bar, the, the unnamed, um, unnamed guy that she ends up talking to. The only reason I'm hesitant to uh, take that as, I don't know, symbolic, is that she does see Arnold Snarb's face and that she'd be anonymous. They're, they're, that's true. I, yeah, she never know, makes that connection. Yeah, that's all. But I no, think that's there might point. be something there, though, with the little boy's room and the cherubic mention. That, that makes sense. What do you all make of the uh, of his foreboding last line to Oedipa, though? Oh, of um, it's too late before the the he either hangs up or it gets disconnected. Yeah, I honestly i could see, I could see both sides of that. I, I could I could very easily see it being him saying like you're in too deep. I can't get any deeper into this without something happening to me. But I can also see it as just, you know, it's literally too late. It's whatever clock in the morning. I don't have time for this shit. And then the either either she didn't have enough in the, you know, because we're talking about payphones at this point. She didn't have enough money in there to keep the call going, or he hung up on his end, or it just disconnected. It's one of those things where I think you really, it comes down to how you're reading the the story, you know, at, at that time. I mean, within an interpretation of all of these different things happening as as Tristero sort of burning loose ends, it, it's entirely possible that because the IA was using the muted posthorn as their symbol, that he had started hearing about other members of the organization being dead or, or something had happened, and he assumed that he was going to be next. That could be part of it. Um, it could also be that in relation to to suicide being mentioned all over the chapter, to your point earlier, Will, it could also be that he's chosen to commit suicide, finally, given that that's such a a deeply integral part of that organization that he happens to be a part of, and so he's no longer interested in talking about anything or in having somebody talk him off the ledge or, or, you know, potentially make him change his mind. it's, It's hard to to pin down what that specific meaning may come from. And in, in terms of like, we've sort of been talking about of the reader being Oedipa and trying to sort out fact from fiction and, and the meaning from the sim- symbolism of the book, it, it could also be something that Pinchon put in there to invite readers to come up with, with what they think that means in, in light of the interpretation that they're going for or, or to choose what that means or to sort it into one category or another. It is interesting that she, um, he says it's too late. Then 
Oedipa asks, for me, and then he says, for me, um, which can be interpreted a few different ways. Um, so we've already kind of gone over, but um, it is interesting that um, she, like, you know, he's so evasive, and um, I do think it could be a reference to um, him killing himself. It could be a reference to him falling in love with somebody, so it's too late for him to go back on it. Um, it could, uh, it could be one of those kind of, um, in the same, maybe in the same style as Dribblet. I'm more thinking of like detective movies, detective novels, uh, mm-hmm. where a witness will like be killed, you know, for what they know or something, you know, maybe she was too direct with him. Yeah. Um, and they, and they know it's going to happen. Like they, they're aware yeah. that like someone's coming for him. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few different ways you can interpret it. Yeah. And I think that's. And we've talked about this. That's one of my favorite aspects of Penchon's novels is you can, with almost all of them, you can approach them from different angles and read them almost as not necessarily different stories, but kind of like the same story, but enveloped in a different sort of atmosphere. You can read it as uh, this conspiracy thriller or as a detective novel or as almost a, a horror story of this woman just being lost in this labyrinthian conspiracy of you know symbols and and weird people and and things like there's so many different ways to come at this that it it almost allows for endless rereadings and reinterpretations it is interesting to to read a book that purposely has no solution which recalls the big sleep by raymond chandler where that's Mm -hmm. a, a significantly more straightforward novel when compared to the crying of lot 49 but you know, famously, when they were making the film adaptation of it, the I don't remember if it was the screenwriter or the director, they they called Raymond Chandler and they said, well, who is responsible for the murder? Who killed the the person who sets off this entire plot's motion? And Raymond Chandler's response was, I don't know. Yeah, um, I love that. It, it, it seems like there is a possibility that that is, is very deliberate in how law 49 was was crafted given pinchon's affection and real reverence for detective and hard-boiled fiction um because there are there are so many different ways to interpret not just this particular part of this book but most of it and and nobody's going to to read it and come away with the exact same interpretation unless they've they've sort of colluded on an understanding with with somebody else and the same would be true for for the big sleep. You you could come up with any number of interpretations as to why what happens in that book happens. Absolutely. Yeah, and just just to complete the list, I guess, of interpretations of the call to the Greek way. I mean, I just I just interpret the I was in a little boy's room. The men's room was full, and it's too late for me. Like as as literally just I'm drunk as hell. I'm going to say I went to the little boy's room. Oh, I'm drunk. That sounds funny. Huh? I, the men's room was full. <laughs> it just, I mean, it, it could be all of these things. It could yeah. be entirely banal. It could be the ramblings of a drunk. It could be some guy who just felt like screwing with someone who he thinks is deranged. It could be a conspirator. And the inherent genius in that decision is that likely Oedipo would have the exact same conversation with herself that we are all having right now. Absolutely. 
I want to touch on, well, I say touch on, I, I kind of want to go over, because I, th- I think it's a, a pretty important part of of the chapter, but also of the book in, in general. The, the part of this chapter that kind of discusses the formation of Tristero and its history, as, as Oedipa puts it together based on everything that she has, really. Um, just like it, when I was reading this at this time, certain things kind of started clicking in different places. And I don't know if it was because of thinking on the JFK article that, that we had read earlier or that I had read or that we talked about. I, I, I kind of started thinking about this in, as, as it related to the Cuban revolution, because there, there was parts of it and I, I could be completely overshooting this, but and I'm absolutely in no way an expert on the Cuban Revolution. I have a very, very base knowledge of it. But it, so initially in talking about the the uh, junta of Calvinist fanatics um, that kicked off the the sort of formation of it, it reminded me of the the sort of rise of communism that came with the Cuban Revolution and the overthrowing of, um, I can't remember the president's name at the time, um, but there was, you know, there's the mention of guerrilla warfare. There's the mention of failed assassination attempts. Um, and, um, what is his name? Hankart, uh, is referred to as the disinherited and Castro was often called the hero of the disinherited. So all these little things, as I'm reading that were kind of pushing this idea of, of this kind of mirroring the, socio-political climate of the 60s and of the Cuban Revolution specifically because that did that whole incident you know which led to the Bay of Pigs ultimately led to uh the the JFK assassination because all these things are sort of tied together even if there's no you know provable threads between you know who had connections to what that led to the JFK assassination I still thought it was really interesting in reading the formation of Tristero as a sort of mirror of the Cuban Revolution. I don't, I don't know if y'all have any opinions on that, but that's just something that came to me. Um, this is a maybe a bit off topic, but I did I did note that uh, whenever we see Fallopian in the scope, uh, the way he's described, um, you know, he has Dressed a like beard. A yeah, he he it does. Besides the fact that he's not wearing a hat, it does his outfit did kind of remind me of of ways that I've seen Che and um, Castro presented, mm-hmm. and it does seem like he has kind of turned into a revolutionary of some sort. Um, well, she even mentions about how he looks like he was training people up in the mountains. Yeah, that and that 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 seems like a dead giveaway. I do think that the there there are aspects i think of even in the cuban revolution i think that castro and his forces were centered in the cuban highlands and that's highlands um and that's where they did a lot of their training and were based from i want to say um so it, that does seem to have come up with the with the scene with fallopian yeah he's even described as wearing the cuban uniform if i can find it real quick even just the fact that he's surrounded that he's suddenly surrounded by women does seem to kind of give him that kind of revolutionary aura. And he does say it's a revolutionary secret at one point. 
Yeah, he because he's described it's she found Mike Fallopian a couple weeks into raising a beard, wearing button-down olive shirt, creased fatigue pants, minus cuffs and belt loops, two-button fatigue jacket, no hat. It that's yeah, it's almost a dead ringer for either Castro or Guevara. Um, because they both kind of dressed similarly at the time. Uh, well, I mean, Castro really kind of dressed that way most of his life. Yeah, and then the final line of the scene is uh, she left him in his modified Cuban ensemble to watch the f- mm-hmm. or watching the floor, waiting for his broads to come back. That does seem, I mean, because um, they're, they're, you know, the, the CIA, because he's so conservative, um, and that there is a, a link between, um, this is obvious considering that Castro and Che were both leftists, but, you know, there is a link between um, anti- anti-Castro forces, anti-Castro people in the U.S. and uh, the Republican Party being conservative, and also the CIA, which is generally viewed as a conservative uh, entity. Um, so it does it does seem to be a, perhaps a link to all that. I agree. Ironically, I actually, when reading this chapter through, uh, for some reason felt very strongly that I was being less and less convinced of the JFK assassination reading of this book. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff there that you can get into, but it just, for some reason, something about this this chapter really, really made me think, yeah, but that's probably a red herring. It's it's the first chapter in a while without without a uh, without a reference to three assassins. Um, I think the. The three, I think chapter three, chapter four, and chapter five all have different references to um, groups of, of three people who are violent and kill people, um, which I'm not exactly sure how that relates to the to the Cuban, or not the Cuban, the, the Kennedy assassination, uh, besides of perhaps like shooters on the knoll, uh, on the grassy knoll, but I'm not, I've never necessarily seen the the number three linked with the shooters on the grassy knoll. But um, it also, because I, I, I do think I'm correct in that the three preceding chapters all have references to groups of assassins that are three people. I think so. That sounds right. The number three isn't necessarily associated with shooters from the grassy knoll, but it is. it could be associated with the three tramps that were found um, in the rail yard oh, behind the, the grassy car, yeah. knoll. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. So I, I kind of also wanted to get everyone else's um, insight on on that history and how much, I guess, how much stock you can put into it, given that Oedipus basically cobbled it together from a number of sources that may or may not be reliable. I think the interesting, the most interesting thing apart, uh, apart in that history that I find most interesting, I should I should rephrase too, is that it seems almost that there are two Tristeros where there is there's the historical one that she does cobble together from multiple sources that existed in Europe and then it almost my reading of it anyway seems though when the few couriers came over to America and started to expand into an organized system here that it almost took on a, a different shape and, and one that was much darker than what it was in Europe and mm-hmm. that the historical Tristero is probably accurate to my reading. I feel like there's no reason to doubt that it isn't, but that there was some sort of evolution that that happened over the course of it being involved in in America 
which could get further into the the overall themes of the chapter as as America being a place that is different from its its outward facing ideals or morals that developed into this sort of subversive group uh, that that caters to mail services for for revolutionary and underground organizations. One thing I found interesting about that section is uh, as it relates to Gravity's Rainbow, because uh, the Thern and Taxis family or whatever that whole entity is, is obviously it's it's a real uh, historically based um, mail service. And um, Rilke, who I'm a pretty big fan of, uh, wrote his Duino, Duino elegies in the castle of one of the um one of the Thurn and Taxis uh like one of their like um female uh relatives in the early nineteen hundreds and uh the Duino elegies feature pretty heavily in Gravity's Rainbow. So I do think this is I, I don't think it's a stretch to think that uh the a lot of this a lot of that part and the history that he goes over uh, does seem to be maybe an outgrowth of his uh, research for Gravity's Rainbow. Because um, I think it it is pretty well documented that Pynchon does perhaps an excessive amount of historical research. Um, so I thought it was interesting to think about, you know, we've gone over the fact that Lot 49 was written concurrently with Gravity's Rainbow. And I do think that those two kind of dovetail in that way. I, I agree with the... Kate's intuition that there seems to be a kind of a twofold meaning of the Tristero, whatever the his, historical uh, reliability of any of the information may be. Um, but it, it's hard to kind of get a sense of the American Tristero because, yeah, they're they're giving their employees crash courses in Suan and Athabascan dialects and they're they're still essentially playing the same game of screwing with the Pony Express and Wells Fargo and all of them. Um, but to what, to what end has it, have they swallowed the poison pill of the spite that they were founded upon? Or is it something deeper than that? It could also be that the, whoever started the American branch of it, so to speak, had revolutionary aims themselves, similar to the, the sort of reasonings behind why it was founded in Europe, and then as time went on and it, it failed to to provide any sense of a real revolution, it just became simply a mail carrier system for revolutionaries? It's a good question. There, There's very little information actually given to the reader about that American half of the organization. Yeah, because it goes from, I mean, if you kind of just broadly look at the history of it, it, it seems to kind of start as a uh, if I'm not mistaken, is like a Calvinist regime, military regime, and then just becomes a, a loose communication network for anarchists uh, by the time it gets over into the U.S. But I think you're right, Kate, in in that it, it definitely took on a more sinister sort of um, agenda, I guess, when it when it when it came here, and I I don't know if there's more to that as far as you know as it relates to like american history and, and the coming over of, of european settlers to america there may be something in there maybe that i just didn't pick up on but you're definitely right that it it, it they they get much darker um when when they when they come over 
Yeah, I suppose the the line that most resonates, I, I guess, if you're going to dig into what the American branch does or symbolizes, would be the the last line, kind of in that, you know, her recapitulation of what she understands about the schism. Um, of their entire emphasis now towards silence, impersonation, opposition masquerading as allegiance. And that that seems to kind of imply that they are acting as operatives for the purpose of Manifest Destiny while disguising themselves as raiding native tribes. Which gets into the... the concept of what waste itself actually stands for we await silent tristera's empire whatever that empire may be yeah and the, the question i guess is is it is the masquerade towards allegiance of those tribes or is it opposition masquerading as allegiance to that manifest destiny destiny and at that point in time it was operating in some subtle way as a as, you know nail strips in the way of that process or is it simply another branch of that process going back to what you'd said luke about the uh, relations to gravity's rainbow um, winthrop tremaine's sweatshop of black employees seems to me a bit resonant of the schwartz commando I and i wonder that, which yeah. came first yeah that's a good point i hadn't made that connection but i can absolutely see that now so to go back to the kind of multiple interpretation angles of all of this, there's a, a what I think is kind of a crucial line that points in that direction as far as the idea that this can be viewed, not just this, but almost anything can be viewed in, in different ways depending on the person. Um, when, she's, when she goes back and, and is talking to Fallopian, he tells her, maybe we haven't found them yet, said Fallopian, or maybe they haven't approached us, or maybe we are maybe we are using waste, only it's a secret. Then, as electronic music began to percolate into the room, but there's another angle, too. She sensed what was going on, what he was going to say, and began reflexively to grind together her back molars, a nervous habit she developed in the last few days. Has it ever occurred to you, Oedipa, that somebody's putting you on, that this is all a hoax, maybe something Inferiority set up before he died? I think that just kind of really hammered home the the the, the multifacetedness of of this whole story in in that there's not really a clear way to see all of this that it it you know as we've been saying it's all subjective and it all depends on the parts of it that you're picking up and and kind of running with there's so much yeah there's so much unclear in this novel something that's un occurred to me over the last few days is um you would think that they're considering the fact that this whole novel centers around uh, Oedipus' ex-boyfriend dying and her having to execute his will. You would think that there would be a funeral scene uh, where, you know, what I'm right. saying where um, you would think that that would be part of the novel. I think I have seen. I mean, it, I don't necessarily want to um, condone this view, but I, it's certainly possible, and I, I don't really know what. Um, this little fan theory would really add to a reading of the novel, but it's certainly possible that Pierce isn't even dead. Uh, we never see a body. Uh, I think I've seen somebody um, 
theorize that the buyer at the very end of the novel could be Pierce himself. Um, yeah. Which I don't, you know, like I said, I, I don't know what that really adds to a possible reading of the novel, um, but it is interesting to think about. It is. And and I'm I'm glad that we don't get any kind of confirmation of that at the end. I think that would have really, <clears throat> excuse me, would have really kind of sunk the ship, so to speak. I, I think that ambiguity is vital to everything that happens in this because the idea that Pierce is dead is kind of the driving force for Oedipa. Like even in this chapter, she kind of comes to terms with the fact that he is dead. But like you said, it, it's never explicitly known that he is. It's just told to her that he is. She doesn't go to a funeral. There's no, you know, verification. She never even sees like a death certificate. So it, we're all just kind of bought into the idea that he is without having any kind of actual proof for it. Well, practically speaking, to execute a will, you do have to have at least one copy of the death certificate on hand. But that doesn't mean she saw it. Um, but I, I do, I like the idea now, and I'm glad it's not there. But I think it would be a very funny, just slight diff, slight shift in our useful timeline if um, Thomas Pynchon had somehow written, instead of she sat back to witness the crying of Lot 49, she'd said some, he'd said something along the lines of, and she saw like a reflection of what might have been Pierce's face, just a similar, uh, an ambiguous statement of seeing someone who looked like Pierce in the auction mm. room. Despite and like you said, it doesn't add anything to the book if you have that. But I just it it would be the funniest thing I think for this book I mean... to end on such a stupid. Maybe noticing something on, like, she sees all the backs of everyone's head and maybe noticing some, like, a mole that Pierce had on his neck or something like that. <laughs> something yeah, something yeah, even, picked up on. Even, even somebody that could be Pierce's relative, perhaps, or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's his brother. Yeah, it's... I, I think... With, with regards to the ending, I think with a lot of other authors i think the temptation to do something like that to have that sort of mic drop moment of of pierce being there or you know something to give you that that sort of resolution i think would be too tempting for a lot of other authors to do and i'm, I'm again i'm glad it didn't happen here because I, I think the ambiguity is important but i do i do like the idea that there is somewhere in an alternate universe you know there is that moment where Pierce walks in and has that sort of gotcha moment. I can't help but imagine the um, uh, way back in the day, you know, ye olde rage comics, the troll face. <laughs> Just Pierce sitting there grinning at Oedipa. Yeah. Did we have anything else we want to go over plot wise? Um, or do we want to jump into quotes? We can jump into quotes. Um, so, one that was funny to me, just a goofy little thing was was Miles referring to Metzger as uh, your young man when she when he was talking to Oedipa. Miles has such a stupid amount of confidence for a sixteen year old hotel manager that it just <laughs> never ceases to make me laugh. He's he's a creep. Let's not forget the fact that he's actively handing out keys to people's rooms to let his friends watch them have sex, but. Shit like that just makes me laugh. Like, just that, that you, oh, your young man, you know, ran off with our drummer's girlfriend. Like, it's so stupid. Yeah, I see it as kind of a part of his evolution over time of going from 
an, a, a, you know, a relatively normal Californian guy who wants to be a rock star to someone who's slowly started using exclusively British slang, but in mm-hmm. his, you know, entirely American accent and context. Yeah. Even that the phrase, he says, the lad is crackers with grief, which, if yes. I'm not mistaken, is, is British <laughs> slang, you know? Yeah. The uh, the other one that I I thought was just kind of funny in a in a pinch on pun way was when he talks about um, Bortz exfoliating the mirror words so much so lushly, and, and just knowing you know Emery Bortz and exfoliating like it's just such a it, it's a almost a dad joke level of pun that just I I, I love that kind of humor and I'm I'm glad that it exists and I was able to pick up on it but. I think also in that scene, another quote that I, I find pretty funny in relation to talking about Metzger running away with a 15-year-old is that the Paranoids not only write a song about it, which seems absurd enough on its own, but also has a reference to Lolita. Yes. Um, yeah, that was another another quote for, for a humorous perspective that's really good in this chapter. Well, I actually... I So, continually throughout his books from this point on, Pynchon does, and we've discussed it a little bit in the past make a big deal out of the effect that Lolita had on culture and or whether or not it did have an effect on culture or if it just symbolized, you know, the, the that, that type of stuff happening. Uh, and it, in this book, which is so full of, you know, uh, what is the word? Uh, subliminal discussions of misogyny and patriarchy to have this this very elegant demonstration of the very stupid trend in our society of having these, you know, wealthy middle-aged men date down in age mm-hmm. felt, it felt a little bit more meaningful than just as a joking reference to his former teacher. It is. Oh, yeah, no, I agree. It, it's come up a little bit in my, dis- like my discussions about pension just kind of over the course of my life that, um, you know the the literary precedent that Lolita um, gives Pynchon is you know Pynchon does include a lot of even especially in this book, but this in Gravity's Rainbow and um, perhaps in other books I kind of forget. But you know he does he is shown a lot. There's a lot of um, of pedophilia type stuff, and one thing that you know some people like you know the. Lolita depicts pedophilia, but it doesn't condone pedophilia. And it does seem important to pinch in that distinction of, you know, being able to depict something without necessarily everyone thinking that you're saying it's a good thing, um, mm-hmm. which I, I think is was important to Pynchon's development as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, e- even choosing to mention Lolita in that section while describing Metzger running with a 15-year-old is, is a very purposeful reference to illustrate to the reader just what sort of a dynamic is going on there that it isn't something innocent or fun or um in any way positive it's 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 deeply troubling even though he's he's making light of it by using by using these these lyrics from a, a Beatles ripoff band I got to say that those lyrics might be the best lyrics of the book Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, completely. 
it's it's a real example of his high magic of low puns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that for me, a lot of my favorite quotes in this chapter come from the very lyrical writing style that he he engages in in the book. Not from a from a songwriting perspective, but just from the actual composition of the prose. And there's so many good ones that you can pull from when Oedipus thinking about what Pierce's inheritance really means and all of the things that he was involved in. But um, specifically the quote, she walked on a stretch of railroad track next to the highway. Spurs ran off here and there into factory property. Pierce may have owned these factories too, but did it matter now if he'd owned all of San Narciso? San Narciso was a name, an incident among our climactic records of dreams and what dreams become among our accumulated daylight. A moment's squall line or tornado's touchdown among the higher, more continental solemnities. Storm systems of group suffering and need, prevailing winds of affluence. There was true continuity. San Narciso had no boundaries. No one knew yet how to draw them. She had dedicated herself weeks ago to making sense of what Inverarity had left behind, never suspecting that the legacy was America. It's it's not only such a beautifully written section of it, but also the the further elucidation of the paragraphs afterwards really get to a lot of the stuff that Pinchon wrote over the course of his career and, and clearly mattered a lot to him. But The Crying of Lot 49 really stands out to me as a book that is written with such beautiful prose. Not that his other books are not, but the amount of really amazing um, sentence structures and and imagery that he engages in in such a, a slim volume of a novel is is continually impressive to me. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of piggyback on that, I, I have, um, towards the end, I have a little section marked that's, like you mentioned, Kate, like he, there is such a lyricism to a lot of his prose. And I, I think that was one of the things that really brought me into his work more when I really, when I started reading his stuff was that I, I could just get lost in his sentences in such a way that I, I couldn't really with other authors. Um, and it's not to dismiss other authors writings. Like, you know, everyone writes in their own way and it's great. Um, there's just something about his sentence structure and the way he's putting together these paragraphs and these images that is so just beautiful at times that it's, it's hard to believe that a, that this can come from someone almost effort. I don't want to say effortless, effortlessly, because obviously he puts a lot into it, but just to be able to do it, I, I kind of have this envy that I, I wish I could be able to do that. But um, anyways, to, to get to the quote that I want to bring up, it's towards the end of, uh, of the book in general, it's on the last couple of pages. Um, and it, it's kind of in the middle of a longer section, but it, it, it says, uh, for it was now like walking among the matrices of a great digital computer, the zeros and ones twinned above, hanging like balanced mobiles right and left, ahead, thick, maybe endless. Behind the hieroglyphic streets, there would uh, either be a transcendent meaning or only the earth. In the songs Miles, Dean, Serge, and Leonard sang was either some fraction of the truth's numinous beauty, as Mucho now believed, or only a power spectrum. Tremaine, the swastika salesman's reprieve from Holocaust, was either an injustice or the absence of, of a wind. The bones of the GIs at the bottom of Lake Inverarity were either there were there either for a reason that mattered to the world or for skin divers and cigarette smokers. 
ones and zeros. So did the couples arrange themselves. And it goes on from there. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's a lot, but it just that, that sort of duality of, you know, everything, it, either all of this is something or it's nothing. It either means something or it doesn't. And I, I think I read that passage a couple of times before I even let myself finish the, the book. But just because that, that imagery there and, that, and the way that whole area of that book was written was just so beautiful that I just wanted to kind of keep going over and, and analyzing how those sentences were constructed and put together and organized. Yeah, and even the content, not from a, from a metaphorical perspective, but from the fact that he, between that quote and the quote where Oedipa kind of looks over San Narciso for the first time and compares it to a circuit board, like, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of any other author who in the mid to late 60s would have been describing things like a computer. And and like with these these relatively recent advances in technology, like already understanding them and being able to utilize them for descriptive prose of a place or people in a place really does speak to, to your point before you read the quote out, like a high intellect of somebody who's just capable to use anything around them to to add it into his his writing in order to to really bring an effect across to the reader like i really wonder how those two passages where he uses computing terminology to describe things would have landed with a reader during the 60s like would they even have understood what he was talking about yeah yeah those those two paragraphs y'all chose uh i'm a little mad those were what i was gonna choose (laughs) but um to to speak to Go to your your discussion of the the seeming effortlessness of his prose, the the way that he just somehow he he simultaneously writes utterly straightforward, you know, casual sentences that have a, a real cadence and sonorousness to them, uh, and one that I think one quote that I think he's actually kind of. You know, he's lampshading himself to to some extent is much earlier on in the chapter um, when she's chatting with Emery Bortz about the dirty pictures. Uh, this very short paragraph says, The illustrations were woodcuts executed with that crude haste to see the finished product that marks the amateur. True pornography is given us by vastly patient professionals. That second sentence is I mean, it is about as simply as you can phrase it, but it is also incredibly beautiful on a, on a you know, a, a poetic, lyrical level. And it's also him just kind of saying, you know, it takes me a lot of work to get something that looks this pretty. Yeah. And I, I do think, talking about the effortlessness of his prose, I mean, he does... Um, you know, he's not Stephen King. He he takes a long time to write stuff. You know, I I think that um, I'm pretty sure he was working on Mason and Dixon for probably over 20 years. Oh, um, for sure. You yeah, know, yeah. And against today could could be that that long or even longer. Um, you know, I I, I having I have uh, gone to the Cormac McCarthy archives and gone over different drafts of different books. 
and I do I I do wonder how much uh, pension like redraft stuff in terms of you know like cutting stuff or you know, like um, writing a whole draft and then re just starting from scratch and you know like I don't there's a lot of different ways to construct a novel especially in in the time in the in the time of typewriters um, and quadrille I, paper too because yeah. apparently that's how he did Gravity's Rainbow. And I, I do think I saw something on the subreddit that he did um, give his papers to, I think, a, a, a library in California. Yeah, a library in California. I think you're right. Yeah. And it would be super, super interesting to have a look at those. It's, I, was gonna, I, I was don't gonna, think it'll ever happen, but no, it's I, a I would, private. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say who's who wants to in maybe two to three years go over to the Huntington Library for a field trip. Yeah, I, well, my wife is a librarian. So maybe I can like, I don't know, use that. Who knows? Get some backdoor access or something. Or if the podcast is big enough, just bring that up. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Name drop it. <laughs> well, and to go back to what Luke had mentioned um, about the amount of time it takes him to write this stuff. I, I, if I remember correctly in the letter he wrote where he, he mentioned, he referred to gravity's rainbow as a, as a pot boiler. He also mentioned that he was writing, I think, think it was either three or four books concurrently. And I have to wonder if that was Gravity's Rainbow, Mason and Dixon, and Against the Day, because the sheer amount of historical references and just miscellaneous that went into all three of those books and their length, I mean, it would, it would have to take decades to do that. Not to mention the fact that Mason and Dixon is written in language in the 16th was, century style yeah exactly style? yeah to the point where scholars have said that it, it is essentially a 16th century yeah. novel because of yeah. how it's written yeah and I, it, I i am of the opinion that those three novels are definitely you know gravity's rainbow mason and dixon and against the day if only because they do stake out markings around what modernity is you know right around the beginning of the enlightenment with mason and dixon right around the beginning of science with against the day and then in gravity's rainbow really the moment where modernism ends with world war ii yeah uh so to go back to the quotes uh my favorite of this chapter is probably there's a few i had written down um but I'm I'm gonna so either you have stumbled and then there's a little bit of text and then maybe even onto a real alternative to the exitlessness, to the absence of surprise to life that harrows the head of everybody American you know and you too, sweetie. That does seem to speak to the fact that I mean it 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 evokes depression to me. Um, how bored, how boring adult life can be. Um, and as somebody that I was raised in the suburbs, I'm currently living in a suburb. I spent a fair amount of my 20s uh, living in a suburb of Colorado Springs, Colorado. You know, there is there is a sense of kind of uh, sameness to things, um, to the absence of surprise to life. Um, I, I found that very evocative and a, a nice, like, kind of concise um, depiction of of what modern life can be for, for some people. Yeah. I, there's, I, I could have pulled a bunch more quotes from this chapter. The problem is they're all incredibly long. It's, it it's those really prosy paragraphs that are like one or two sentences of just 
beautiful poetic description of things. Uh, so I, I would also say to jump to the, the most pinch on part of the chapter, I would I even just say the whole chapter itself is the most pinch on part of it. Just the summation of everything that had happened up to this point, the bleakness of, of the ending, the ambiguity of the ending, the prose that is scattered throughout I, all of it, I think is just the most pension part of, of really probably of, of even the book. Yeah. The last about eight to 10 pages in my edition are super verbose and flowery and it can be a little bit hard to pin down what he's getting at sometimes uh, on a word by word phrase by phrase basis, at least for me. Uh, but the prose is, is pretty next level, pretty um, peerless there at the end. Yeah, I would say that for me, the most pinch on part of the chapter would be just after the section uh, with the quote that I had read out, there is a part where Oedipa considers all of the different interpretations of, of what may have happened. One where Pierce set this up for her, one where he didn't. One where she just happened to come in contact with these these signs and and symbols and sort of going through all of those different motions, not giving any credence to any of them over a different interpretation, and then just sort of the the inherent terror and paranoia that that leaves Edipa with, not only feels very Pynchon esque in a sense of, of his greater canon about paranoia and about the inability to understand the, the truth behind certain things and, and about the, the capital T they, but also as it relates to this specific book of inviting those multiple interpretations from the readers. And it's it almost kind of feels like Pinchon is putting all of these different options in there to kind of encourage the reader to say, you can agree with any one of these and choose any one of these, but none of them are, none of them are, are necessarily going to be, be verified or, or, be true yeah he kind of throws so much into not not just this but i would even argue pretty much all of his books that there's there's just this almost like a sensory overload he there's just so much that he's throwing into here and just saying like all right here's all these parts here's all these little pieces and they're connected but they're not connected so make of it what you will and I think it, it, what it reminds me of, and I think what uh, kind of helped me get into his work is that's also the same explanation I used to kind of sell David Lynch to friends of you, you have this, this artist who's not going to make something that's linear. It's not going to be this straightforward, you know, here's a, here's a story about a, a woman who goes on a journey. It's here's this story, and you're going to get a lot of things that come at you from different angles, and you're going to come away with something this time, and then you're going to want to go back and and re-examine it to see was was that right, and you're going to pick up more pieces along the way, and more pieces along the way the next time, and keep coming away with more information and also different interpretations of that information at the same time. So it's never. It's never almost. It's never a chore to reread his work, because there's always new things to kind of parse out and and find in there. Yeah, I'd, I yeah, I'd agree. And in to, in a similar metaphor, the way I think about 
after you've reached the point where you're more or less acquainted with the the material of the book, what you're left with from Pynchon's novels is what I what I always describe as if you had one of those wooden desk puzzles where you know you take it apart, you put it together. It's like he hands you a bag full of all the pieces and you start to put it together every time you read it. And every time you start to almost put the last piece in, you realize that you have it all out of sorts. You have it all out of order or in another sense that it almost all fits together perfectly, except that everything is warped away from itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I kind of used a, a similar metaphor with, again, to go back to, to David Lynch was you, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of filmmakers, a lot of authors are going to tell you a story, and you know if it's a a puzzle, so to speak, you know they'll they'll put the pieces in front of you, and they will put it together for you. They'll they'll show you how all these pieces connect. But with someone like Pinchon, it's just here's these pieces, have fun, figure it out, and however you get to the the end of it is is fine. But I I like that what you kind of added to that. You know, there's always, you know, it comes out a little warped or. Or something's missing, you know, here and there. And actually, um, Kate, you chose my most Pinchonian part of the chapter. Thank you again. <laughs> <sighs> you got to start going first, Will. Apologies. Apparently, but I'll um, I'll narrow it down to a specific couple of lines in that section. Um, uh, she's realizing that she hopes she's crazy. That night, she sat for hours too numb even to drink, teaching herself to breathe in a vacuum, for this, oh God, was the void. There was nobody who could help her, no world. They were all on thing, mad, possible, and dead. That, uh, that quote does bring up something that I think I'm going to try to explore in the general discussion, uh, and it goes back to the, the tower in the first chapter for me. But it does, this whole book, an Oedipa, um, it seems to be like, Oedip one of Oedipa's problems um, is that, you know, she keeps, she seems to expect, um, uh, things that change for her or for her to find some like magic, uh, key to explain everything that's going on and what she's been going through. And it's hard for me to put this into words. Um, but it, it does seem to be like there, there is a sense that like Oedipa struggles with the fact that, you know, wherever she goes, wherever she, whoever she's around, um, you know, she's still herself. She's still, she still has, you know, like, just because you go on vacation doesn't mean that your problems go away, I guess is maybe a kind of simple way to put it. It it seems to be like, you know, like she, she spends this entire book searching for something to fill that void. And you know, that void is something that just can't be filled, in my opinion. Yeah. No, that's, I like that. And that actually kind of immediately made me think of, there's a, a Neil Young song called On the Beach. And there's a line in that song that's... um Though my problems are meaningless, that don't make them go away. And yeah, that's a beautiful that, song. Yeah, yeah, that just immediately came to my mind when you mentioned that. So I'm gonna have to go and listen to that now. Um, Great album. It's my favorite Neil Young album. Like it's probably the, my favorite album. Album. The history of the composition of that album is wild. If you've never looked into oh, it. Oh yeah, the Honey Sliders <laughs> and all that kind of yeah. yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's so like we will yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, so yeah, I don't want to go off and start a Neil Young podcast just yet, but maybe down the road. <laughs> um, so 
that um unless anybody has anything else that's that's chapter six um we have finished the book and yeah um i don't want to mention what our next book is going to be just yet um we are going to come back and do a sort of wrap-up episode on lot 49 and just kind of discuss the book in in total um not a full-length episode i think it'll probably just be a shorter kind of like our our shorter episode on the courier's revenge um and at that point we'll we'll talk about what our next book is but um yeah this this has been quite the journey um i've you know as i mentioned i've read this a couple of times in the past and and i think doing this with you all uh really has given me a lot more insight into the book and and uh, and helped me kind of recontextualize it and reanalyze it which obviously is the point of doing this in the first place so um yeah we'll uh we'll come back uh a week from now and and do a wrap up on on lot 49 and um kind of discuss the future from there so um want to thank everyone again for listening and for sticking with us through this book uh it's been a lot of fun uh i want to thank connor uh, who has edited uh, the last few episodes for us and and has done that on his own free time. So big thanks to him. Uh, if you have questions, comments, anything, please uh, email us at mappingthezonepod at gmail.com or you can throw something up on Reddit and one of us will catch it and uh, hopefully be able to discuss it. Um, and until next week, uh, we'll see you all then. See you all. Bye.